Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're going to read uh, the Bible now. Um, so they're up on the screen, the Bible passages. And kids, it's so great to have you in with us today for the Lord's Supper service. Um, if you can see a Bible or you can share with mum or dad or a friend to read along, then that might help um, because they're... There's a couple of them and they've got a little bit long. Alright, so our first one is from Exodus. It's chapter 11, verse 4, to uh, chapter 12, verse 13. So Exodus 11 from verse 4. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the first son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month it is to be for you the first month the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire, with the heads, head, legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. And this is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. 
Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And our second reading is in the New Testament, in the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew. It's in chapter 26. And we're going to read the first 30 verses. So from verses 1 through to 30. So when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. When Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they said. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord? Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. 
Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi? Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Am I reading the... That's it. That's it. Okay. Um, yeah, may I suggest that you leave uh, Luke's? Oh, sorry, not Luke. I'm, my my mind is very much in Luke's gospel at the moment, as uh, that's the main series that we're working through at this time of year. But Matthew, Matthew is where we're we're reading from today. Please leave Matthew's gospel open in front of you. May I lead us in prayer as we um, turn our attention to that now? Please pray with me. Our Father God in heaven, uh, in these words, Jesus calls on his disciples to set in their calendars and in their rhythms of their lives uh, together uh, this discipline of remembering, of turning back to the basics of the gospel for their own reassurance and for their comfort uh, and for their joy as they look ahead. And so we share the Lord's Supper together today. And Father, we presume uh, that... They needed that sign because those first disciples are an awful lot like us. Um, Forgetful, sometimes at least a bit faithless. Uh, We start to presume upon your kindness or in the other direction we flag and we falter and uh, we know you love us but do you really love us? Will you always love us? Oh God, may your spirit work in our hearts right now uh, the wonders of your word, please. Familiar and yet ever fresh. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Uh, there's our, our big idea. Let me leave that up for those who are taking notes to take that down. Um, it's, it's, um, you, you'll see where it comes from in just a few moments. Uh, you might recall that each time that we share the Lord's Supper together at the present time at least, we, we approach it via a slightly different avenue. Um, and loosely guiding those approaches to the Lord's Supper is an oldie but a goodie, the little instructional booklet called the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, Last time that we had the Lord's Supper together, we asked the question, so is the bread and the juice, like, are they actually, like, really actually turned into Christ's body and blood? And the answer was, no, they're not. They're just symbols, And so here's today's uh, angle of approach. Uh, Today's question about the Lord's Supper is, uh, here's the question, then why, why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood? Paul, uh, as in one of the New Testament authors, uses the words a participation in Christ's body and blood. So you see the point, why is it then, if it's not actually turned into the actual body and blood of Jesus by some magical words or whatever, why is it that the New Testament calls it 
um, Jesus' body and Jesus' blood uh, of the bread and the uh, juice. And may I just read to you the answer from the Catechism, and I'll emphasise the bit that I want to talk about, but I I mention this by way of introduction because it frames where I'm going um, with the remainder of my comments and um, sermon today. So why do we call it the body and blood of Christ? Here's the answer. Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that as bread and wine nourish our temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood truly nourish our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance and that all of his suffering and obedience... This is the bit I want to emphasise. And that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. Could we concentrate on that last bit? With the Passover images, which Kath read to us just a few moments ago, with those images of of the lamb slaughtered on the, the night that Israelites left Egypt and all of the rest... Um, Could we concentrate on that last bit that I just read, that all of his, as in all of Christ's suffering and obedience, are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. Um, Folks, may I highlight three brief things as I just extend the basic message that we had to the kids um, out to us all now. My three points are Passover, promised and personally. Passover, promised, and personally, if you're taking notes particularly, those are the things that you want to get down. Firstly, Passover. Um, Friends, it it makes somewhat uncomfortable reading, doesn't it, or uncomfortable listening as we listen to um, Cathy read from Exodus before, because the Old Testament gives us some, frankly, pretty gruesome images, and is this one of the more confronting ones? Uh, We read it there from uh, Exodus... um, just a moment ago, but on the night that Israel were released from slavery in Egypt, so that's around 1500 BC, if you're not very familiar with the Bible, the Bible spans an enormous stretch of time, Um, and that bit of the Bible that we just had read to us, the first part from Exodus, 1500 BC or thereabouts, God called on his people to mark their houses with a very grisly sign. And I almost don't want to encourage us to picture it, and yet I do want us to have the sort of vivid reality of it in mind. Is it too confrontingly graphic? Each household would slaughter a lamb, and the blood of that lamb, whose meat was about to become their nourishment for their body, as a provision from the Lord, the blood of that lamb was to to be painted onto the door frames of their houses, of their front doors. That blood was to ward off the judgment of God, at least symbolically. And the logic appears to run something like this. Um, Though every household in the world may deserve the judgment of God to be visited upon it, that blood is the sign as if to say, no, death has already visited this house ahead of time, in our stead. 
that we might live and not just survive, God, but live and be set free thanks to your saving hand and one day find our home with our God and worship him um, in joy. Remember, Israel were just on their way into the promised land at that point, taking their first steps toward it. And so here's the thing. We read in Matthew 26 verse 2, have you got that still open in front of you? These seemingly innocuous words that I suspect a Jewish mind would flood with images of lambs and blood and a hurried meal and of sober thoughts of God's judgment and yet the lightness of his love for us as well. But do you see what Jesus does in Matthew 26 or what Matthew does in in Matthew 26 verse 2? Instead of mentioning a lamb, Matthew 26 verse 2, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. It almost makes me shudder, really, to imagine Jesus fully knowing what lay ahead for him, calling to mind that potent, bloody image of the Passover and juxtaposing the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Do you see what he's doing there? Secondly, promised. So firstly, Passover. Secondly, promised. Could we leap all the way down to verse 26 together, please? Please read with me from verse 26. While they were eating, so there they are at the Passover meal. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on. Until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Perhaps this is a strange way to approach the concept of promise um, in these verses. Actually, let me say up front, especially for those of us who are a little less familiar with the background, the weird word in there in verse 28, the word covenant... Um, We still use that occasionally, don't we, in ordinary life? It it comes up in legal matters from time to time. Uh, It comes up when you're describing the marriage covenant. Sometimes we might describe it that way. Covenant means something like a particularly and especially sober, binding promise. Cross my heart and hope to die. In fact, in biblical terms, in many cases, it's one that you are willing to pin your life on. You will stake your life on this promise and at least fulfilling your side of whatever the promise is. So what's the deal with with God's covenants across the Bible, whether to Noah or to Abraham or to Moses or David or others? Each time God covenants, right, these sober, um, lasting promises, they have been moments when God has bound himself to his people. And to tragically unloving, unfaithful, and yet still loved human beings. So here's my strange way to approach the the promise in these verses. It's did you notice this about those verses? It's that Jesus kind of makes two promises here. That is, he is so confident of the first that he goes to layer a second one on top of it. He's so confident of the covenant in verse 28. That he goes on to promise the consummation in verse 29. Jesus is so confident that his blood will secure complete forgiveness for his followers. 
that he sets a date for their reunion in verse 29. Did you notice that? It will work, Christian. You will be forgiven. It is the covenant of God, the solemn commitment, cross my heart and hope to die, commitment of God. And when has God ever let his people down? Uh, This is uh, verse 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Why do I labour this point? It's simply to say, Christian, since your faith is in Christ, your sins are forgiven. All of them. They are forgiven. You see how certain Jesus was of it. You know that, don't you? He isn't holding them over you anymore. He isn't sort of suspiciously scrutinising because if you put another foot wrong, boy, the whole thing's going to come undone and unravel. Jesus says, I have a date with death and then I have drinks with my friends. That's what he says, isn't it? It's as sure as that. I'll be there and so will you. Which leads thirdly and finally to our third point, personally. So those, those words from the catechism that I quoted at the start, uh, that he, Jesus, that he wants to assure us by this visible sign that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. As if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. Jesus says, verse 28, This is my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, I'm looking forward to the time, verse 29, that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. It may just be a symbol, folks. It is just a symbol. We covered that last month. But it is an unmistakably personal one for the followers of Jesus. It was personal for Jesus, the one whose blood, like a Passover lamb, was poured out for many. So may it be personal for us. His life for ours. His blood for mine. His suffering in your place but our future life altogether. Um, I began with a somewhat gruesome image. Uh, May I conclude with one that is hopefully a little less confronting, um, but leads us, I think, to a similar place. It's kind of a parallel story as I make it out, and this comes from the preaching of um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was a great English preacher from the late 1800s. Let me just read this story to you, and then we'll pray. Spurgeon says this, He says, you have an enemy who all his life long has been your enemy. His father was your enemy and he is your enemy too. There is never a day passes that you try to win his friendship, but he spits upon your kindness and curses your name. He harms your friends and there is not a stone he leaves unturned to do you damage. As you're going home today, you see a house on fire. The flames are raging and the smoke is ascending up in one black column to heaven. Crowds gather in the street and you're told there's a man in the upper bedroom who must be burned to death. 
No one can save him. You say, why? That is my enemy's house. And you see him at the window. It is your enemy, the very man. He's about to be burned. Full of loving kindness, you say, I will save that man if I can. He sees you approach the house. He puts his head out the window and curses you. An everlasting blast upon you, he says. I would rather perish than that you would save me. Do you imagine yourself then dashing through the smoke and climbing the blazing staircase to save him? And can you conceive that when you get near him, he struggles with you and tries to roll you into the flames? Can you conceive your love to be so potent that you can perish in the flames rather than leave him to be burned? You say, I could not do it. It is beyond flesh and blood to do it. But Spurgeon says, but Jesus did it. We hated him, we despised him, and when he came to save us, we rejected him. When his Holy Spirit comes into our hearts to strive with us, we resist him. But he will save us. No, he himself braved the fire that he might snatch us as brands from eternal burning. Can we pray together? Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, uh, some of the ancient worship practices of your people of old, uh, with the Passover and the sacrifices and all of the rest of it, they seem so foreign and so distant to us. And yet we do get it, a potent emblem of death, a death which on the one hand seems such a waste and so unfair and so sad, and yet it contained a generous promise of life. Father, we ask that you would please expand our wonder and our awe at the love of Jesus for us. Uh, Yes, also of the seriousness of our waywardness and sin and self-absorbed ways, But may we also find a reminder of the preciousness of life and what an extraordinary gift that you desire for us and for our world through Jesus. Life for the wayward and wandering, life even out from under your just and fair and right judgment. What a beautiful thing it is to be reminded of your care for us, right in the very place where we are also reminded of the very worst of ourselves. Refresh us with Jesus, please. Amen.